0: Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Marge, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan, how's it going? Hey Arch, I'm pretty good. I'm
1: excited to be back for another chat and back on one of our uh, regular topics. I feel
0: it is, yeah. So it's uh, one of the podcast favourites: facial recognition. A slight twist, I guess, because most of the time we're sort of diving into the various applications and places where we see facial recognition popping up that we're maybe not so comfortable with, like you know, retail settings and schools and wherever else. But happily today, we're we're going to be talking about some of the solutions to some of the concerns that people have about facial recognition. Maybe, it, maybe a positive slant on it. Yeah,
1: hopefully we're in solution mode, not the world is terrible and everything's going wrong mode. Although there'll probably be a bit of that as well. So yeah, we're talking about this model law for facial recognition that was put out a few months ago now by the UTS, University of Technology, Sydney Human Technology Institute. So it came out in September. The Human Technology Institute's a research group at UTS led by former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo, uh, Professor Nicholas Davis as well. So they're focused on not just facial recognition, but responsible and humane technology more broadly. They've put out this report and model law for a suggested example of how we could regulate facial recognition. Model law just refers to a, a piece of, you know, example model legislation, right? It's, it's a proposal for how this could work, how it could be worded, how it could be structured. It's quite detailed, intended as an example for the actual legislators to pick up and run with or apply somewhere else.
0: The context for the report and the model law is probably worth briefly stepping into as much as i said we won't talk about the negative it's the reason we're here it's the reason we need this model law um, we gotta we gotta get gloomy at some point Aj. yeah it's probably an itch that we always need to scratch on the podcast but you know it won't be any surprise to most people know there's been a lot of public concern about facial recognition it tends to make people uneasy they think about surveillance and last year choice uh the consumer advocacy group put some real sort of numbers and data into that feeling that we generally have by running a survey against about a thousand people. And that found that about eight in 10 respondents agreed with the idea that we need regulation to protect consumers from the harms caused by facial recognition use in retail settings was the sort of specific focus of that question. But it, it really reflected generally that sense of unease that people have about it. And yet, despite that kind of unease and those kind of survey findings, what we've seen over the last kind of year, year and a half is just – so much expanded use of facial recognition technology we've seen it pop up in so many different settings we saw the chain 7-eleven using it in order to facilitate customer feedback surveys we saw our favorite tech startup clearview ai popping up in the news many times over the last few years uh, looking to roll out their highly problematic facial recognition solution In a range of circumstances, you know, it was first offered up as a solution for terrorism and law enforcement for finding child sex offenders. And then even, you know, they were even proposing that it could be used in the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine in order to, you know, identify soldiers in war. Probably most famously, we saw a lot of attention around the use, proposed use of facial recognition technology by some Australian retailers, Kmart and Bunnings and the good guys. And they were looking to use it to identify potential shoplifters and abusive customers. South Australia police have looked to implement facial recognition technology into CCTV cameras. And then, of course, the club's uh, environment looking to use facial recognition technology to identify problem gamblers. It's already out there in South Australia, and it's something that has been proposed for New South Wales and ACT. So just kind of burgeoning and popping up and sprouting everywhere despite this kind of sense that people generally don't feel great about it.
1: Yeah, exactly right. It's despite these really negative public responses you know that retailers deployment came up bunnings and the good guys was you know on front page news was there was a huge outcry was on the morning shows and stuff we've had regulator intervention as you said with Seven Eleven 11 oaic determination telling them to quit it Uh, We also had the OAIC determinations around Clearview AI, telling them off and telling off the AFP, the federal police, for using Clearview AI as well without adequate controls. So there's a lot of public outcry. There's a lot of regulator intervention. And yet the trend of adoption, you know, kind of continues unabated, right? I think that's one of the drivers behind this model law and the Human Technology Institute putting this stuff out. I think another of those drivers, and this is kind of an argument that's really well documented in the report, is that the state of our current regulation for facial recognition technologies really doesn't cut the mustard. It doesn't doesn't get us um, to where we need to be. The Privacy Act, does regulate facial recognition technology a little bit. You know, collection of personal information must be reasonably necessary, and the OAIC interprets that as incorporating some kind of proportionality. So one of the things that 7-Eleven got told off for was using facial recognition, which is, you know, quite invasive and and potentially risky technology just for customer surveys to get some demographics and to make sure people weren't scamming the system. And also under the Privacy Act, you need consent to collect biometrics generally, unless it's for a law enforcement purpose or there's some other special exemption. So there, there's some restrictions. There's also restrictions on the use of facial recognition in other Australian laws. So there's potential to fall afoul of um, anti-discrimination laws, you know, as we've discussed before, and we'll probably discuss again, some facial recognition technologies are less effective for particular groups, women, people of colour, people with disabilities. If your facial recognition technology consistently fails with a particular group, which results in their disadvantage, you can be falling afoul of anti-discrimination laws as well. So, you know, there's, there's some level of regulation there, Australian law, but at the same time, there's some massive gaps. Privacy Act doesn't apply to small business, doesn't apply to political parties, doesn't apply to employees, doesn't apply to media organisations... That consent model is pretty iffy if we're deploying this in CCDV cameras at the front of stores, say. Like, how do you meaningfully get people's consent? How do they meaningfully opt out or opt in to that system? Ed Santo, in talking about some of these issues, has a great line that Australian privacy law is a bit like Swiss cheese. There are so many gaps in the law and it doesn't effectively protect people from the harmful uses
0: of facial recognition. There seems to be two strands there. There's one about the sort of the state of adequate of our privacy law. We're going through a reform process to close some gaps in, in how effective it is. But then there's also the fact that the harms of facial recognition technology are not fully encompassed by kind of privacy harms. There's sort of so much more that, which we'll talk about that kind of we need to stare into so many other risks. So even a more uplifted privacy act may not get us coverage against all of those harms. I think the challenge articulated by the model law around kind of how do we regulate this technology is it it really looks at the trade-offs it's quite a sort of in some sense maybe strange to say it, but kind of pro-technology approach it does make clear that there are benefits to be had in technologies like facial recognition technology we have seen in other places this idea of you know what we just need an outright ban against facial recognition technology sort of full stop but it doesn't take that position it sort of says the challenges are we need to think about how do we strike that balance between sort of fostering the benefits, the innovation, but also mitigating the risks? And I think one of the ways it does that quite effectively, I think, is that it starts to kind of cut through this fog of or oh, facial recognition is just this bad thing by looking at the specific types of facial recognition there are. Because there are different categories of facial recognition. There are different functions And each of them represent a different kind of risk. There's facial verification. And this is the sort of one-to-one matching that we'd be quite familiar with where the technology is basically looking to match, you know, your face against a reference face that it has on a record. In other words, a biometric image of your face to ensure a match. And that's basically the technology behind Face ID and, you know, other sort of technologies that you use to sort of log into things or authorize yourself. Which
1: is pretty low risk. No one's up in arms about unlocking my phone with my face. That's, you know, super convenient, pretty low risk. There's no kind of surveillance implications there. There's just a template on my phone. My phone's matching locally
0: what it sees through the camera with that template. Fairly low risk, fairly straightforward. And also the benefits of that are very immediate and apparent. You know, we all sort of experience it every day. I mean, I feel very grateful that I don't have to constantly punch in my passcode. It's like magic, isn't it? It's magic. And and to do things like pay things and do all sorts of other things that unlocking a phone now enables just by staring at it is incredible. So then you've got the second category of facial recognition technology or functionality, which is the more problematic one, which is what's called facial identification. And so this is the idea of one-to-many matching where you're comparing a captured face against a set, a collection of reference faces. So basically you're trying to identify if the person sort of walk in front of say the camera, if their face print matches a group of reference images that you have on file. So this is the kind of famous kind of retail surveillance type scenario where you have a list of face prints that align to abusive customers or banned customers. And you're looking to identify someone who walks past the store or walks into the store, whether their face print matches that set of reference images.
1: It's the typical law enforcement usage as well, right? The, you know, I have CCTV footage of a person at a crime scene. I want to run it against like a driver's license database or you know a a list of suspects or something and and see if I get a match
0: yeah and then this would be the sort of picking me out of the crowd scenario you know you're sort of walking past you think you're minding your own business but yet Something has happened here where you are being, even if only briefly, sort of identified your data, your information, your biometric information collected in order to do something, to do a check. And as we saw from the choice survey and the general reaction around that report, people have a deep sense of unease about this version of the technology. Although super interestingly,
1: less unease around law enforcement usage of this. People hate private companies doing it. But the OAIC's Community Attitudes to Privacy Survey from 2020 found that 58% of people who answered that survey were comfortable with law enforcement using facial recognition to identify subjects, and only 23% were uncomfortable. And similarly, 56% of people were comfortable with government bodies using surveillance for public safety, and only 22% uncomfortable.
0: Just to round this out, moving on to sort of the third type that's identified in the in the publication is the idea of facial analysis. So this is the idea that using these technologies, we can kind of analyze someone's face in order to determine things like, you know, behavioral tendencies, potentially even personalities. The modern equivalent of phrenology where you'd sort of, you know, look for bumps on someone's head or, you know, whatever else and, and be able to somehow determine their personality. It sounds like I'm... Um, talking about something futuristic or made up, but there have been actual products that claim to do this. We've seen them particularly rolled out as more and more people have used Zoom calls and online uh, video conferencing, products that claim to be able to detect if a child who is using kind of online learning solutions is actually bored or products that determine whether a job interview candidate is engaged or motivated in the course of an interview, uh, being able to determine someone's you know level of aggression if they're walking into a football arena or being able to determine someone's sexual orientation. Very, very little evidence to back up the validity of any of these products. This is pretty much in the category of snake oil at the moment, but it is a category of facial recognition that is growing. So I want to just quickly round out the categorization of the, of the technology into these three things, um, in a couple of ways. One, I think it's, it's useful because it, as I said, it, it breaks down this idea that, okay, well, facial recognition is just a, a massive thing we should be worried about to so, say, well, actually, in some contexts, it's lower risk and it, the application is very different. And so we need to actually think about what are we trying to do and what the form of it is. But the other thing just, I think, to bear in mind is sort of in, in doing some reading around this, there was one critique I read, which was that there's a risk of the more problematic parts of facial recognition being normalized by overly promoting the, the forms of the technology that are less problematic. We get people used to face ID type technology to unlock their phone. And then that's how they identify with the idea of facial recognition. And that's how they understand it so that when the surveillance applications are sort of rolled out, there's a little bit less resistance to that. And so, you know, there are people like Evan Selinger, a professor at the Department of Philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology, he makes this point that the normalization through perhaps some of these more palatable means of facial recognition technology that sort of paves the way for surveillance type application and this idea that we should be comfortable with facial recognition everywhere in our lives. That speaks to the importance
1: of actually going through spending the time to talk about the different types of technology. It doesn't make sense to talk about facial recognition as one thing. It's, you know, three distinct things. And even within those distinct things, there are kind of riskier and less riskier uses, right? The kind of tech that you use to unlock your phone is just fundamentally different. Different in terms of the way it operates in a practical sense, the way it impacts people um, as well. It's fundamentally different to, yes, yeah, say, identification, that picking people out of the crowd.
0: Probably just worth outlining because we do sort of dwell on the, the problematic nature of the technology a lot, just that. Um, There are some really beneficial uses that are possible from these different categories of facial recognition technology, probably not so much the the facial analysis, but the, the other forms, as we've talked about, the convenience of being able to unlock your phone with your face, um, we saw through COVID kind of applications of facial recognition technology that enhanced levels of sort of public safety because you know there was less kind of touching and and whatnot required to open doors and whatnot. So there was sort of genuine benefits around security and safety that we see. In the healthcare sector there's applications of facial recognition technology that are allowing clinicians to more quickly diagnose genetic conditions. You know, this is a really great benefit, but accessibility for blind people, uh, allowing them to be able to identify other people, other faces through the use of this technology, obviously makes a massive difference to the quality of lives. The report makes this point that it's not just human rights risks that it's at play. In some cases, depending on the way we gear up this technology, it can actually enhance human rights.
1: Which gets us to the model law, right? We've got this situation where... Our current laws don't work in keeping this stuff safe, where the facial recognition is actually so useful that it doesn't make sense to ban it or to put some kind of whole moratorium on it because, you know, you've got human rights impacts of that. You're depriving people from, of this technology that's super useful, particularly in that kind of blind and low vision use case. So what do you do? You need a regulatory framework that governs facial recognition technologies in a way that is commensurate to that risk. And so that's essentially what this proposed model law is trying to do. At its core is this idea of a facial recognition technology risk assessment, familiar to people in privacy, familiar to people in cybersecurity risk assessments, very analogous to a privacy impact assessment. It's an exercise of mapping out the use of the technology, who it might impact, what are the kinds of things that could go wrong. Wrong and and what's the level of risk that this activity might present? So there's a requirement that any organisation that's deploying facial recognition technology needs to make sure that a facial recognition risk assessment's been done. And depending on the outcome of that risk assessment, the model law applies different regulatory requirements. So for low risk, there's very little that you need to do if it's a low risk application. If you're just unlocking a phone or whatever. Go for it, minimal restrictions. If it's medium risk, there's a set of safeguards that would be required. You know, you'd need human review, pathways for decisions made by the facial recognition. You'd need training of operators to make sure they're actually using it in a sensible and safe way. You'd have a duty of care for the um, organization deploying the thing to make sure they're not doing it in a way that impacts people's rights or harms them, you know, set of secondary or higher obligations for an organization deploying facial recognition in a higher risk setting. And then for the really high risk stuff, it would be banned unless you have authorization from the regulator or for certain exceptions for law enforcement or for pure research kind of applications. So the concept of the law is really Risk assessment, graded legal obligations depending on the outcome of that risk assessment – And then some added elements, in particular around law enforcement. The model law proposes this whole set of more detailed regulatory requirements like regulator reviews, reporting, operational testing, evidentiary rules, much more granular governance framework for the use of facial recognition in law enforcement. Again, accepting that in a practical sense, super useful technology and really important for law enforcement in some ways provided that it's actually used safely
0: i really like the focus on the risk assessment and the impact of the technology as opposed to the technology itself i think my favorite part of the model law was the section where it actually specifies the factors that are relevant to a human rights risk assessment so it actually articulates like here are you know five or six things that you need to look at and it breaks it down and they're things like you know what's the spatial context of the technology is it you know in an open public forum or is it you know is the technology being used in a restricted or private space which of those three types of facial recognition is it is it just a sort of one-to-one facial verification or is it the identification or the analysis even broadening out beyond that to look at the performance of the technology you know how foolproof is it does it have a high error rates does it work well for you know people of all parts of the community with different skin tones and genders and then broadens out beyond that to look at like what role does it actually play in decision making is you know somebody going to rely on this facial recognition technology to make a really material decision Is that decision just going to be automated and happen automatically you know and then obviously consent and things like that to me that was the real kind of core part of the report because it brought to life the unease that we feel about facial recognition but also made it more meaningful to sort of take it beyond just the technology as a thing on the shelf being this is good or bad to actually what needs to be assessed as being good or bad is How are we using that technology? Where are we using it? Who are we using it for? And that's really the conversation that we need to be steering to. And I think the model takes us there. I love just how
1: granular and practical they start getting and focusing on the actual deployment and the actual operation of these things. And they're often things that get overlooked, right? Like the reason there are successful products on the market today that do this facial analysis that tell if your kid's bored in maths is because no one tests the accuracy of these things before they buy them. Have you actually, before you've deployed this technology, tested if it, whether it does what it says on the tin? The other, real blind spot that you see in some of these deployments is who's operating it and are they actually trained? You know, do do they understand the circumstances in which this tool operates effectively? And do they understand the circumstances in which it struggles? There's a really huge differential there for facial recognition, you know, with this like one to many, many matching, you know, identifying someone out of the database, Those algorithms work like pretty well in perfect lab conditions and pretty well across a whole range of, you know, across women, people of color, people with disabilities. They're pretty reliable in perfect conditions. The error rates are like less than 3%. But when you go out into the real world and you have like rubbish input photos and weird lighting and the accuracy gets down to like as many as 20% errors. If you know that as an operator, you can, you know, adjust... How you're using the technology say, ah, oh, you know, ignore or discard the match or be alert to false positives. Whereas if you don't know that dynamic,
0: you're using this technology in this totally inappropriate way. Even the sort of one to one matching can kind of break down under this much more granular scrutiny. So there's this example written up by MIT technology review in December about uber using facial recognition technology for their drivers in india to ensure that the person behind the wheel is the actual registered driver so it is that so-called safe application of the technology where it's comparing just the person's face to a a record of their own face but it fails it's got high error rates for indian faces taken it you know in different conditions because people are asked on the spot prompted at random now you must upload a selfie so we know that the person behind the wheel is the person who it should be and they take the photo at dusk they take it in different lighting conditions it fails and then They're automatically locked out as a driver for, you know, up to 24 hours. And, you know, as this kind of write-up describes, for many of these drivers, this is their livelihood. They work back-to-back for, you know, 20-hour shifts in order to put food on the table. Being locked out for 24 hours is no insignificant thing. It's the safe version of the technology, but then you add in all the other elements. How is it being used? Is there an automated decision? Does it work well for all people of all colors and all faces? And you start to get a better picture of the human rights risks. We're really focused on
1: preventing bad outcomes, right? And as as you know, I, I, I don't apologize for that. Um, but one of the things that having this kind of more structured and more set out decision making framework helps with is it helps businesses think through potential applications, avoid the silly ones. But but also in identify the the safer ones and the more practical ones. In a lot of ways, I think having this structure can encourage responsible innovation and encourage kind of new and beneficial uses of this stuff in a way that our current absence of regulation doesn't. At the moment you have to kind of creatively interpret the Privacy Act and you have to read into the OASC's decisions in seven eleven and and Clearview AI and, you know, construct a framework for yourself or get people like us in to help you build that framework, the more you have set out in legislation as a structured assessment with, you know, codified outcomes, I think would really help give businesses confidence in deploying these kinds of
0: systems. I mean, in that sense, it's it's a model law for emerging tech generally. This is what we want. We want – there are these technologies that have risks – We want something that compels or uh, requires organizations to work through a very rigorous process of assessing and mitigating those risks in order that we can have the many benefits that we we know these technologies can provide. But if you leave it as a, into a vacuum, you're either going to get companies just stepping around and going, I don't want anything to do with it, or you get kind of these rogue operators like a Clearview AI that have no regard for the law and just continue to sort of give the technology its worst possible manifestations. The
1: current situation, I think, is not good for anybody, right? Where we have these kind of weak and holy privacy laws, and you've got, as of December last year, very significant fines attached to breaching those laws. And so it doesn't reliably protect individuals and it doesn't give business security that what they're doing is actually, you know, lawful and that they're not going to get whacked over the head with this huge fine. This model law is based on a, a more general human rights assessment. It was proposed most recently in Australia by the Human Rights Commission while Ed Santo was the head of it. Part of their human rights and technology report was kind of advocating for this kind of generalized human rights assessments for new technology. I, I really agree this is the right model for Without being too prescriptive of what's allowed or not allowed, pushing the risk assessment out on the innovators, giving them a framework and a way of justifying their decisions and understanding what level of controls need to be
0: applied to a particular project. Probably worth calling out that it mirrors kind of things like the um, the AI Act in Europe, you know, looking at kind of these emerging forms of technology and saying we might need something a little bit more dedicated. So in terms of next steps, um, the publication from the Human Technology Institute um, calls on the Federal Attorney General essentially to introduce a bill into the Australian Parliament. That's based on this model law. And then also that the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner would be assigned regulatory responsibility for facial recognition technology as well.
1: And resource to do that. There's a very bad habit of governments assigning responsibilities to the OS and not funding them to deliver them. Last thing I do want to come back to before we wrap is there is a large chunk of that model law that is centered around a bunch of really sensible basic governance controls for law enforcement use of facial recognition. We haven't dug into them because they're less interesting conceptually. They're just like really basic governance and due diligence and regulatory oversight controls that really should apply to law enforcement uses of facial recognition. And that's a huge gap in our current regulation. So yeah, good. Good to be back in the swing of things for the new year. Yeah, positive um, chat
0: for early on in the year. Um, yeah, it took
1: us a couple of months to get round to the report from September, but I'm glad we did. Um, yeah, good chat, and talk to you again next week. Yep, yeah. thanks, Jordan. Cheers. See you, Arch.